Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arimus. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 13th. On today's show, we'll talk about the popular revolt over Snapchat's new redesign, the fizzled out end to Uber and Waymo's courtroom drama over the future of self-driving cars, and a reflection on the legacy of the late John Perry Barlow, lyricist for The Grateful Dead and founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who wrote the massively influential techno-libertarian manifesto, The Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. Later, we'll be joined by Justin Rosenstein. He's the co-founder of Asana, and he's the former Facebook engineer who's often credited with inventing the like button. Years later, he actually reportedly deleted the Facebook app from his phone. He's now a founding member of the Center for Humane Technology. That's the new group of tech insiders who are advocating for a healthier relationship between people and their gadgets. And like we do every week, don't close my tabs. Our picks for best on the web this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm good. How are you doing, Will? I'm fine. We were praying for rain down in Santa Barbara today. We did not get any, maybe another day. It doesn't rain in California very often. I saw that the Uber Waymo trial, which you were following, came to sort of an anticlimactic ending last week. Uh, what's your takeaway from that? I mean, basically, we had these two massive companies, Uber and Waymo, which is a subsidiary of Google's parent company, Alphabet, it used to be Google's self-driving car project, uh, went to court because uh, Waymo, like I, like I've, we've talked about before, alleged that Uber had uh, trade secrets in its possession that came when Anthony Lewandowski, one of the engineers from Waymo, left and went to Uber. You know, and and they ended up settling the case after a few days of back and forth, different people taking the stand, including Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of Uber. Yeah, this was an unexpected settlement, right? Um, it, I don't know if it was unexpected or not. I think nobody really knew how the case was going to turn out because there really wasn't a clear, you know, gain for either side had, you know, Uber won. They would have, you know, Waymo would have looked incredibly petty had Waymo won. Uh, Uber would have had to pay potentially somewhere around a billion dollars, which, you know, Uber would have been able to afford. But it it didn't seem like there was really like a clear gain for anyone to win from this. Um, They did end up settling and Uber did end up paying, uh, I think, around 245 million in equity uh, in stock to to Waymo um, as part of the settlement, as well as an agreement to not use any IP from Waymo. That said, it was kind of a fight over nothing because neither really had a lot to gain because, you know, the trade secrets were probably already outdated. Self-driving car tech is moving rapidly. Um, They were probably really more so fighting over who's going to be the dominant player in this space. And uh, and a lot of companies are, are gunning for that position right now. 
Yeah, I thought the real winner from that trial was the, the public and the media who got all these these juicy details from the people on the stand. Uh, you know, we saw we got insights into their text messages. I thought it was going to go on for a while and be this great spectacle. It did not, sadly. But I guess I should be glad that the companies are now getting back to the work of actually building these self-driving cars and hopefully making them safer. I wanted to talk about a story you wrote last week. It was about John Perry Barlow, the founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He was a Grateful Dead lyricist. He was a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. He was, by all accounts, this larger-than-life figure, a sort of Renaissance person who shaped the Internet that we know today. Now, reading the stories that came out when he died, a lot of them had this sort of hagiographic quality. He was this mythical figure. You presented a more nuanced picture, I thought. What do you take away from John Perry Barlow's life and his contributions to the Internet we know today? Well, he certainly contributed a ton to the Internet, and he did live an incredibly colorful life. And, you know, I actually worked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, which was, as you mentioned, an organization that he founded in the early 90s. And he really had a lot of deep insight with founding EFF because he realized that, you know, basically politicians and law enforcement were being asked to make laws about things and to enforce laws about things on the internet that they fundamentally didn't understand. Like they fundamentally didn't understand the technologies that they were being asked to to regulate and to make laws about. At the same time, he was an outspoken libertarian and he called himself a libertarian. And so there was a real tension in the fact that he understood that laws were being made about the Internet, but he didn't really believe that there should be government regulation or laws on the Internet. But he still thought that, you know, it would be better if technologists and people who understood the Internet uh, were working with politicians so that they didn't, you know, in his mind, ruin it. So he basically sort of advocated for this hands-off approach from the government, which we have, in fact, seen throughout much of the history of the Internet. We have. You know, a lot of the advocacy uh, around the Internet, particularly in the 90s and, and, and early 2000s and, and even after Snowden, has been around, you know, get, making sure that the government doesn't regulate the Internet or doesn't regulate speech online, which, you know, is incredibly important to preserve free speech online, right? Because the Internet doesn't work in the same way, you know, traditional media works. You know, as I wrote in my piece, you can build a whole industry with somebody without ever meeting them. You can share a digital file for free, right? It doesn't cost anything to reproduce a digital file. Uh, you can hack into things and 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 break, in, you know, entire companies without ever leaving your office chair. It's, it's just, a, you know, an incredible flattening of power that we hadn't seen before. And, and it, it's really great that there were folks there to preserve constitutional rights online, what what they didn't do though and and something that they didn't focus on is uh is is how you know corporate power not government power could also be detrimental to how people communicate or to the health of communities and there was certainly a a more pronounced concern for how laws around the internet could could harm our constitutional rights as opposed to harm our communities um not everyone has the same rights really in practice, you know, like some people, uh, it's a lot easier for them to speak freely than others, right? Because they have economic standing and, and all these privileges. Uh, for some people, uh, you know, surveillance is, is much more uh, nefarious uh, to them and their communities than it is for others because they may be under threat from law enforcement, um, you know, in, and profiled in ways that, that, that not everyone is. And there was just a much more focus on on civil liberties than than social justice throughout, 
you know, decades of, of Internet advocacy. And I do think that that helped to shape the Internet that we have. And, and a lot of that comes from from Barlow's legacy. Yeah, that, that's a fascinating point. I, I, in some ways, obviously, it's sad to lose such a towering figure. It's very sad. Um, yeah. Oh, and in much respect. Yeah, and he gave us he gave us a lot of of the good that has come from the internet. I think uh, through his advocacy and his evangelizing for it. One other thing I found interesting about Barlow is, like so many technologists that we're hearing from today, he became somewhat disillusioned with technology in his own life, and he reported feeling oppressed by all the beeping and buzzing of the computers around him. And that's something I think we're also going to hear in a different way from a from Justin Rosenstein in our interview, who's a member of a younger generation of technologists. But in other news, uh, users are mad at Snapchat. They are up in arms this week after the company rolled out a major redesign of its app to millions of users. This redesign separates a feed with content from your friends and messages from your friends with content from media partners and celebrities that's now in a separate feed. Um, The app's faithful users, many of whom are very young, are just not happy about this change at all, so much so that they launched a petition on change.org that went viral. It's now at over 800,000 signatures. Um, but I I see that people are really angry. I don't quite understand what they're angry about. Um, maybe, Will, you can help to unpack this a little bit. Yeah, it's it's hard to unpack because whenever there's a huge redesign of a really popular social media app, the loyalists are up in arms. It's just, it's basically inevitable. We've seen this with Facebook in its very early days, um, and again, about four years ago when they tried to redesign the newsfeed, we saw it with uh, basically everything Twitter has ever, ever done to change the service has been greeted with an outcry. And mm-hmm. now it's so interesting to see Snapchat getting the same treatment from its loyal users. It's not surprising in a way, because the whole point of this redesign is Snapchat is kind of stuck. Like They're loved by teens still. But they just cannot catch on with people over 30, people over 35. And so they're trying to make the app more intelligible to us oldsters. That is something they have to do if they want to grow the business. And of course, they're under pressure to grow all the time because they're a public company now. But at the same time, it's not at all surprising that this would anger the under 20s who were using it mainly to interact with their friends. My impression is they don't care that much about reading a bunch of news stories or publisher content. They want to chat with their friends all day and send 50 snaps a day. And now your chats and your friends' stories are both in the same portion of the app. They're lumped together. They used to be separate. And so now apparently it's confusing to oh, tell when you're... confusing. Yeah, so you're getting confused about whether you're chatting with somebody or whether you're seeing their story. That's a very important distinction because the chats are often private. The stories are often more public in a way. So I can understand the confusion. Our writer, Christina Bonington, tried it out. She said, the kids are right. The, the update sucks and the app is now a mess. So one of my questions kind of from a more businessy perspective is... That, you know, people have been angry every time a change happens on a big social media platform since there's been big social media platforms, right? And we've seen petitions about Facebook changes or, you know, a stampede of angry tweets about Twitter's hearts, you know, but it's not like everybody started dating each other just because Twitter put hearts on the on the tweets instead of stars. Um, with this, though, Snapchat's really struggling to expand and it has a user base that really loves the app. I'm wondering if this might be a a moment where we might see social media companies actually, you know, listen to their users, right? Uh, I will say Twitter did that more recently with their revocation of uh, verified users um, that uh, 
were peddling in hate speech on the platform after people protested the uh, verification of Jason Kessler, who was one of the organizers of the Unite the Right rally. Uh, soon after, Twitter started to de-verify um, other people who uh, were kind of famous for their hate speech or their racism. Um, but typically, we don't see platforms respond to user protest. I wonder if it might be different this time. What are your thoughts? That's a really interesting question. I think this will be a big test for Snapchat and what kind of company it is now, now that it's under pressure from Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, you know, I think in the early days, Evan Spiegel, the co-founder of Snapchat and the CEO, was very much of the sort of Steve Jobs school where you don't assume that users know what they want until you give it to them. That said, this wouldn't be the first time Snapchat has reversed a change in response to user outcry. Sometimes that turns out to be the right move. Other times, it's pretty clear that a company needs to stick to its guns. We've seen both of these in Facebook's history. Early on, when Facebook first introduced the news feed, people rebelled. There were these huge groups forming, demanding that Facebook take it back. They didn't like that their information about what they were doing was being shared with everybody else. And Facebook stuck with it. And of course, the newsfeed grew into arguably one of the most potent tools in the entire technology world. Four or five years later, Facebook tried to redesign where they tried to make the newsfeed more like a newspaper with big pictures and people hated it. And Facebook actually rolled that one back and they never really went back to it. And still, that's why Facebook still has this kind of clunky feel. So I don't know which way Snapchat is going to go, but I do think this speaks to the Catch-22 in which it now finds itself as a company whose growth was all driven by young loyalists and that now has this task of, of reaching a wide audience. So far, it's just not doing very well at that. And, and, you know, maybe it won't. Twitter has always struggled with that same problem of how do you jump from being a niche service to a mainstream service when the market and your investors are demanding that? Yeah, I don't use Snapchat, but if I was, it would probably just be for the vanity filters. <laughs> um, and so if they could find a way to appeal to like people in their 30s that just want to like occasionally goof off on their phone with the weird filter, as opposed to, you know, chatting all day with their friends, um, you know, there may be something there, who knows. <laughs> but don't listen to me. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Justin Rosenstein, the co-founder of Asana. We'll talk about his role in creating Facebook's like button, his efforts to reform the technology industry, and our relationship to our apps and smartphones. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. Our guest today is Justin Rosenstein. He's the co-founder of Asana, a workplace productivity management company based in San Francisco. Prior to Asana, he worked at Google, co-creating 
Gchat, and Google Drive. He also worked at Facebook in the early days, where he's credited with helping to create the like button. In his spare time, which is apparently something that Justin has, I guess because he's so good at managing his productivity, Justin has become a founding member of a group of tech industry insiders called the Center for Humane Technology that aims to lobby the industry and educate the public about the pernicious effects of technology in our lives, such as smartphone addiction. Welcome to If Then, Justin. Thanks for having me. So I've seen this everywhere about you, that you're credited as the inventor of the like button. Can you tell us briefly, what does that mean? Like, what did you actually do? Did you sit down and just draw a like button or what happened there? <laughs> so f <laughs> Facebook has these things called hackathons where you get together in a small group and literally stay up all night just trying something out. And then in the morning you have breakfast and you show it to other people and you can people can decide which of those things are, yeah, that was a good idea or, oh, that's that's really promising. Let's let's actually put some some effort into that. And so the first hackathon at Facebook that I was a part of, I worked with a small group of people and had this idea of what if you could enable people to, what if you could make the ability for people to communicate positivity to each other, the path of least resistance? What if you could make it just one click to have a little bit of positive feeling or affection go through the social graph? Uh, also with the, the second order idea of that would be a pretty good way to figure out what is good for people to look at how like what what to show most prominently in newsfeed based on well if it's something that your friends like that's probably something that you'll like too god when you when you put it that way it sounds so it sounds so lovely and benign and delightful and uh, obviously it's sort of <laughs> sort of morphed into something else over time yeah it was uh, it was much more successful than expected and i think given given our understanding of the system at that time, very lovely intentions. Um, and it's just grown to a place where a lot of those good intentions have come true. And then there have also been a bunch of unintended consequences. All right. And we definitely want to get into that. And but so I wanted to ask, you, you made your name as a technologist developing these tools at companies like Facebook and Google. And some of them are the very same tools that now keep us picking up our phones every five seconds and keep us tethered to our devices and our technology. Now you're helping to lead this advocacy group that warns, and I'm quoting from your website here, quote, technology is hijacking our minds and society. I read you even deleted your Facebook app at one point. So I guess my question is, what happened? Like, was there, was there some specific moment when something clicked for you and you decided that all these things you had built were not good for society after all? Or was it something or someone in your life? Or what, what changed there? If I had to give a candidate for what is the meaning of life, I think presence would be high on that list, right? The ability to drop into the present moment, to be really with what is. And when I see all the ways in which technology isn't serving that, in which it's degrading our attention span, in which it's taking away our ability to focus on the present moment, that's something that I find very alarming um, and is undermining many aspects of our lives, up to and including our democratic systems. But I think these problems are all very solvable through good product design and by mindfully noticing what are the unintended consequences of our creations and how can we redirect our energy to making sure that technology does align users so that it is in users' best interests. Um, but I think in general, technology has been 
both an enormously positive force and has all and has a bunch of uh, of troubling consequences that we need to look at. So does that mean then at the beginning people were not mindful in their product design around how uh, you know these technologies interact with you know folks or how people rather interact with these technologies? I mean, you know, the onus obviously can't really be on users because we just open up the app and 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 use it. And so I'm curious then if, you know, when these technologies were being built, if they were being built for maximum engagement as opposed to really the well-being of the folks who would depend on them to communicate. Well, it's as you mentioned a second ago when I described the the very sweet, innocent intentions behind the like button, I think it would be very hard at that moment in in the in Facebook's history to anticipate that 10 years later how that would be being used or the ways in which social media would become deeply intertwined into the fabric of society or of democracy. And so I think the the nature of mindfulness is not that you're going to be able to anticipate all consequences ahead of time, but mindfulness is about noticing. It's about seeing, okay, what has actually happened? And then how can we adjust things to make them keep going in the right direction? Um, so if you look at something like like that initial goal for the like button, let's, let's figure out what people like and then show them more of what they like. As a first order approximation of what to show people, I think that still makes a lot of sense. Sure. But but now as we as we look at things like like the role of social media in democratic discourse, we can say, well if you keep showing people just what they like, that's inevitably going right, to lead to right. filter bubbles. Like is basically too simple an emotion. And so, you know, I love cat videos. I really like cat videos. But if you just show me cat videos, that's not going to be as valuable. That's not time well spent in the way that showing me things that are intellectually challenging, that give me new perspectives on life, that help me develop empathy and compassion for people with different life stories and different perspectives than I have. So we really need to think about what are the most important things to show people and then mindfully design technology to show that kind of content. What can these companies do now? I mean, it seems like Facebook is, you know, trying to to get people to spend less time on there and and that seems good and all, but uh but I, I, I question the, the kind of underlying, you know, goals under that, because ultimately Facebook still wants to make a lot of money. Right. And so, I mean, are they really going to be building this for the, the well-being of, of, of users or, or are they going to ultimately still be trying to make money? Like, what can these companies do now? Because we're already in a crisis. We don't really have a lot of time to 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 slowly work our way out of it. You're absolutely right. It's imperative that we solve these problems right now. We're the the last generation of people who can even think about this world of what life is like pre-smartphones. And so if we don't get this right, you'll have people just growing up assuming this is the way it has to be. And we may never recover our attention span. We may never recover our ability to think critically and think for ourselves, which is a, if you play out the logical consequences of that are very frightening. But I don't think that's inevitable. I think that there's many ways we can solve these problems. So some of these are at the design level, and then some of these are at the business model level. So at the at the design level, if you look at something like the distraction crisis, that we're, we're not able to pay attention for more than a few minutes at a time, that's because our phones are, a lot of that is our phones are constantly buzzing. They're constantly taking us out of the present moment. And that's because you, you're, you're concerned that one of those notifications is going to be something that's timely and important. 
despite the fact that 95% of the notifications you receive are not timely and important. They're just distractions. I don't need to know that, that someone liked my Instagram photo right now when I'm in the middle of dinner. I could wait three days to get a, a batch notification about those things. But today, I think there just hasn't been as much awareness as there should be around the, the cost and preciousness of a person's attention, and we can change that. Another example is that all software is going to guide your attention in some way. And yeah, I think about this a lot in the context of work, where most people work out of their email inboxes, which is just crazy when you think about it. Right? The, you're looking, email is basically someone else's to-do list. You're, you're at any given time looking at what someone happened to have messaged you most recently, which is a very poor approximation for what warrants your attention right now. You really want software to help align people's attention with their intention. So I think there's a lot of, of things that we could do, um, th- th- a lot of things we could do on the design side. But you're, but you're right that it, there is fundamentally this misalignment between the financial incentives of advertising-based um, of advertising-based companies with their users, because by its nature, advertising-based companies, their customer is the advertiser, and the user is the product that they're selling to those advertisers. Yeah, so I like this. I like the the point you made about how companies need to be more thoughtful about what could go wrong when they build a new technology or what the downsides might be. I share April's concern about how feasible that really is in a system where the company that engages the most people and gets the most people to spend the most time on their platform basically wins in terms of business and ad revenue. I wanted to actually bring that back to your work at Asana. Um, Asana, I believe you've, you co-founded in 2008. So it is software that's been around for, for quite some time. I know people who use it and really like it, find it incredibly valuable for this purpose that you talk about where you can sort of keep your goals uh, organized and and keep focus on a task. But at the same time, since Asana has been out in the marketplace, Slack has come along with another workplace communication tool. That's I'm one addicted that is, to it. <laughs> I'm addicted to it. Slack is endlessly yeah. distracting. It's it so is. It's much. just these little bursts of messages from your coworkers all the time. And it doesn't reflect the way I want to communicate with my coworkers. April is a Slack skeptic among Slack skeptics at Slate, although we also all love it. Love but it, how, do it, you, yeah. how do you reckon with the fact that Slack is now vastly more popular than your own tool, Asana? I think part of Slack's popularity or the, the popularity of that kind of chat in, inside of workplaces is that it's it's a paradigm that's been around for a very long time. It's like People, IRC, right? It's it's like IRC, but it's also just like SMS or uh-huh. it's like like Facebook Messenger. That's a, that's a way that people have been working together for quite some time. And so its ability to roll out into an organization, I mean, it's a valuable tool. We we're a customer of Slack and and Slack is a customer of Asana. But it's it's a cognitively it's a very simple model to adopt. Asana is a is a pretty radical departure from the way that organizations have traditionally functioned. When when we started the company, we we felt like, okay, what if we could enable every organization in the world to be able to accomplish their goals five percent faster? That that felt like such a leveraged opportunity for positive social good in the world because when you think about basically everything that matters, whether it's improving education or improving healthcare or creating sustainable technology, sustainable clean energy, upgrading our democracy. Basically, everything comes down to teams of people working together. And we felt like if we could enable every team to be able to work together faster and, and more mindfully, more effectively, in, in, in the flow, in the zone, 
then that would be a huge contribution. Um, we actually asked customers a few months ago, how much faster do you think you are with Asana versus before you started using Asana? We were optimistic. Maybe we were already at 5%. And, and the average response we got from customers was 45%. The average customer feels 45% faster because they're using Asana. And I think that that's just a testament to how, even though it's a, a novel way of thinking about work, it's just so much more effective and productive than, yeah, those message passing, permanently distracted ways that people are used to. And, you know, one thing that, that strikes me is that you did say that you want everyone in the world to use this product, right? And so, you know, if you do hope to expand that like that, then you have to be careful not to um, at all lose sight of your initial values of, you know, not uh, not becoming this this like addictive or must need product. You know, I, I think it's it's definitely a, a, a tightrope to to walk there. If you take the more cynical and admittedly more common perspective that the purpose of a corporation is to be this profit maximizing uh, monster that just creates shareholder value at all costs, then yeah, you're going to have the cynical perspective that all these social media companies are just going to do whatever it takes to maximize engagement. But if you take the other view of capitalism, that a company is a group of people who have come together to accomplish some mission and you instead see the role of money as more like a more like rocket fuel, where the, the purpose of building rockets is not to accumulate as much rocket fuel as possible, but you do need rocket fuel in order to, to launch a rocket. If you see money as the fuel a company needs to accomplish its mission, then it makes sense that a mission-driven company should be willing to, to not maximize its profits if it's going to do better for the world. But I also think it's a false choice because I think there are new, there are other business models beyond advertising that media can and should be adopting. And when I look at HBO or Netflix or Spotify, I see a lot of, yeah, I see a lot of good experiments happening with things that more closely align the incentives of the user with the incentives of the, of the service provider. One thing on the the capitalist point that's really interesting to me is that uh, just to go back to some of the early stuff we were talking about around you know tech and addiction um, is uh, that you you made a lot of money from from Facebook as it grew right and and you know I think you know in your advisory role with this new group of people that are calling for reforms both of the industry and then maybe also of of policy initiatives that go into this. Um, one of the things that I find so interesting about this group is that you guys are particularly positioned to criticize the industry in a way that, like, I am not, you know? <laughs> I mean, although I, I come from an advocacy background, I used to work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, you guys, you actually can perhaps speak to the industry in a way, as well as to politicians in a way that um, really makes sense of this problem. And I'm curious if you can kind of you know, speak to the fact that like, yes, you've, you benefited a lot from a lot of people using these tools. Um, but, but now it seems like you, you see there's a level of responsibility that you have now. I'm wondering if you could help me kind of make sense of these things. <laughs> I'm not totally, yeah, I'm not totally sure where to take that question. Makes sense of. If you could kind of help uh, us understand how you see your role as somebody who profited greatly from these technologies, who's now advocating that um, that maybe some of the reasons why these technologies were so profitable isn't isn't necessarily ethical. Are you asking, does he feel guilty? Justin, do you feel guilty? <laughs> <laughs> guilty or, or do you see that you have a particular role to play in this and that you can really articulate these things in, in ways that that others can't? Yeah, I certainly don't feel guilty. Um, 
I think different people get into the technology industry for different reasons. And over the last several years, as tech has become the, the new Wall Street in terms of it being a place that it's uh, possible to make a large amount of money, you see more and more people who are mercenary. You see people who who come for the purpose of how can I how can I get mine? How can I extract as much money from the system as possible? I think it's a cliche at this point because so many of those people, e- even those people, claim they're doing it to make the world a better place. But I grew up in the Bay Area and started programming computers when I was ten, and I've just always been uh, pretty excited about the idea that you could build software that could have these positive effects on the world. And so I, I look at a company like Google that I still really admire. The fact that you have all of the world's knowledge at your fingertips is so amazing. Um, and I look at a lot of the really positive things that social media has created as well, that Facebook has created as well, whether that's the something like something like the recent Me Too movement. Like that's named after a hashtag because social media was so powerful in amplifying this really important social message. Or the um, Jared Cohen at the State Department pointed out that in the first five years of Facebook's existence, he felt like it did more to help the relations between Arabs and Israelis than 30 years of coordinated attempts by, by the CIA, because it was it was a way that that young people in different countries could actually see each other, could actually see pictures of each other and see, oh, that person's not so different than me. They're also into the same pop music that I'm into. They, they also are just human beings. And there's all these beautiful things that arise out of technology. And then there's all of these unintended consequences. And so I'm excited to continue to use my voice and, and use the my, my role in the industry as, as an insider to be able to call attention to the fact that, yeah, we as technologists need to take responsibility, need to look at what are the consequences of the things we're doing and how can we take full ownership of that and keep looking at what are the good things and how can we amplify those and what are the negative things and how can we design around those and remove those and how can we make sure that that we see money not as the end in itself, but as the fuel we need in order to accomplish these important pro-social missions. Yeah, I I definitely have my differences with Jared Cohen, um, but I'm interested that you think that, you know, for all your concerns about the way we're interacting with technology these days, you still seem like generally an optimist that technology, if applied thoughtfully, can solve these problems that technology itself has created. Is that a fair characterization? I definitely believe it's possible. I, I don't think of myself as an optimist or a pessimist because I don't think the future has been written. I think that we're at a moment in history where, and not just around technology, but there's all sorts of areas in civilization where it's easy to plot a course where if we continue on business as usual, if people continue to default into greed and we continue to treat the earth as a as a something to be mined for its resources instead of taken care of, that we could pretty e- easily fall into a dystopian world. And on the flip side, in the extreme hypothetical where you could get all of humanity to collaborate effectively, where you could get every country, ev- every industry, every person to say, we're all going to work together. You could create an incredible, beautiful world, and you could almost certainly solve all of the major problems that are facing humanity right now. Those are choices. They're not the choices of any one individual person, but collectively as a society, we have the ability to to decide which of those paths we want to go down. We're we're not at the we're not at the mercy of the future. The future hasn't been written. We're co-authoring the future together as as a people. I agree that working together will go a long way. I. Um think that that's a a huge lift and uh, definitely needs to be paired with, you know, the real tensions that people 
and and politicians and and you know all kinds of uh, different different groups have to to vet and deal with uh, before talking about you know how how great it would be if we all worked together. That's <laughs> oh, it's an insane amount. It's an insane amount of hard work to get everyone to okay, work together. Yeah, that that said, uh, that said, it, it was really great to have you on. I actually learned a ton, and uh, it's just incredibly insightful. You've been in this industry for so long. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Justin. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break and then don't close my tabs. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs, our favorite things we saw on the internet this week. April, what tab could you not close this week? Um, well, there was a video that came out yesterday from Boston Dynamics, one of the best you know, robotics uh, labs in the world by far, of a small robotic dog and its l- slightly larger robotic dog friend. Um, and the small dog couldn't get through a door, of course, because dogs can't use doorknobs. But its larger robotic friend who came around the corner had a big arm attached to its head and uh, was able to open the door and let itself and the small dog through. And uh, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> First of all, that's adorable. Uh, you think so? <laughs> second of all, second of all, it's creepy as hell. I remember Boston Dynamics had this really clunky, gigantic dog-like robot that was called Big Dog. Mm-hmm. What are the names of these? These are uh, Spot and Mini Spot is what they're called. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is de- these are definitely kind of uh, iterations on Big Dog, the original quadruped from Boston Dynamics. And that was funded, I think it's important to remember, from uh, DARPA, uh, the military's kind of experimental robotics arm, where Boston Dynamics has gotten, you know, most of its project funding um, before it moved to Google in 2013. Now it's uh, owned by SoftBank, the Japanese tech firm, which bought it last year. But um, but no, th- these dogs uh, have a, a background in military research. <laughs> that's for sure. And that's the one that you're referring to. And, and the ones that we saw are kind of babies of that. What's the point of a robot dog that can open a door for another robot dog? Um, I don't think that that's going to be what they're used for. I mean, that's the the question of what are these robots going to be for has always been the unknown question with Boston Dynamics robots. Um, but the fact that, you know, they're kind of the original thinking is, was military. You might imagine that they would be used to, like, detonate a bomb or, you know, go to places where people shouldn't be, um, you know, particularly in, in incredibly, like, hazardous or, or, or you know, war-ravaged areas. That said, um, um, what this dog really showed was just uh, wild advancements in robotics that we should really keep an eye on. Um, you know, this dog, uh, the one with the grabber for a head, 
didn't miss the door handle. It didn't knock on the door accidentally. It didn't, um, you know, exert the wrong amount of force to uh, to to pull the door open. And then, you know, it knew how to leverage its weight and its body to then hold the door open with its foot before it then held it open with its hand. It just showed a level of dynamicism and understanding of its its own self that, I, you know, you just haven't seen really in robotics yet or that I haven't seen yet. Um, something that's dynamic, you know, could potentially, if the computer vision is good enough, and we don't know, um, it wasn't picking stuff off a shelf between other like objects of the same size or color. You know, that would ostensibly be much dif- more difficult to do. Um, it was just taking, you know, one extruding object and, and, and turning it. Uh, but but it was a just incredibly dynamic movement. And, and this is the type of technology that is going to be potentially used with computer vision uh, to take things off shelves, right? And, and to do kind of things that, that we can do. Yeah, it's easy to forget when we hear about these computers that can beat the best human in a game of Go or chess or poker, that robots still have a really hard time doing basic human physical tasks that involve visual processing, like, you know, picking up a glass of water and carrying it across the room or opening a door handle or that sort of thing. So it's it's interesting to see them making leaps forward here. And I think on the scale of creepy to adorable, I'm going to tilt toward adorable just for the fact that these dogs are going to take a bomb for us. That really endears them to me. We don't know. I don't think that that's what SoftBank <laughs> has in store. Um, I just am saying that that's kind of the origins of Boss Dynamics is funding, but uh, but the military is certainly working on robotics, you know, and um, and they've certainly led uh, most of the advancements, you know, in robotics. Even self driving cars started out as a, a you know a DARPA challenge and project. And so I think it's really important to remember that a lot of the physical robots that we see, uh, you know, a lot of the, the genesis of that came came out of military experiments. Um, that said, enough about robot dogs. I could talk about this for a long time. It used to be my beat when I was a reporter at Recode. Uh, we also have Valentine's Day this week. And speaking of robots that are less embodied, um, Will, you had a, a, a tab about that? <laughs> Yeah, I promised last week to try to come back with a more lighthearted tab this week, and I think I found it. Literally hearted this week, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. It is a, it is a tab about hearts. Um, and it was, it was put on Twitter by a research scientist in optics named Janelle Shane. That's Janelle C. Shane on Twitter. She trained a neural network on a whole bunch of those candy Valentine hearts with those little messages like, be mine. And she trained her software to generate its own Valentine's Day messages. You can probably guess where this is headed. Some are more off-kilter than others. Some are more flattering than others. I'll read you some of the first messages that this neural net came up with. We had love bun, time hug, bog love, sweat poo, and you hack. I think that's my (laughs) favorite one. I don't know why. Really? (laughs) So not to be like the negative person who's not um, impressed by AI or uh, or Valentine's Day stuff. I just guess I feel like I've seen so many iterations now over the past few years of like, look, this AI did a funny thing that a human wouldn't do. Um, what it does show, though, is something that I've said before, which is that, you know, people are always afraid that AI is going to become too smart and take over the world. And And my contention is always that. It's kind of too dumb and already has taken over the world. <laughs> and that's really what we need to be worried about. This is kind of a demonstration of that. Not that these candy hearts are taking over the world, but, you know, this uh, this technology that uh, kind of undergrids the 
the bad candy heart messages is, you know, used in court sentencing and <laughs> is used to make, uh, you know, all of these really important decisions. Um, that said, uh, these hearts were funny and it's always nice to see anybody poke fun at at Valentine's Day, even even if it is a computer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can't believe you're a contrarian on the Valentine's Day candy hearts, but I do agree. <laughs> I do agree. It's kind of like if you've seen one of these neural net outputs, you've seen them all. I loved it anyway. Did I mention one of them was stank love? I don't Does like change it. Your mind? I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think it's funny. Um, but all right. I don't know. This probably just shows we should not look to computers to generate our Valentine's messages. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. That's our show. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Justin Rosenstein, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at Rosenstein. And if you like this show, please help us spread the word. A big way that people can find this show on platforms like iTunes and Overcast is based on the reviews and ratings that it's gotten. So we'd really appreciate it if you could go and take the minute to leave us a comment and review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Thanks. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. We'll see you next week.